I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. Here we are at episode 75. Dang, that's uh, that's pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. I mean, we're three quarters of the way to 100, which is kind of mind-blowing. We're not that far away. So yeah, and I like to celebrate every little milestone. So here we are. I think it's important. That's something we're just going to do, friends. Yeah, we're proud of what we do here. Before we get any further into this episode, we want to just go ahead and say this one is not for the faint of heart. It could be argued that you could say that about most of our subjects, but during this series, we're going to be covering cannibalism, necrophilia, bestiality, and other terrible, terrible things. The time that I spent researching this series, I had to stop on numerous occasions because I felt legitimately ill. I do not blame you. Um, Knowing what I know about this guy, disgusting, quite frankly. So that is the first and last warning that you're going to get, dear listeners. Today, we are starting our series on Issei Sagawa. He is known by a few names, but he is most commonly referred to as the Kobe cannibal or the celebrity cannibal. The crimes he committed and his absolute lack of empathy and remorse will shock you. The lack of justice will disgust you. Buckle in, dear listeners. We are about to take you on a very terrible journey. I don't want to give away a ton here. I know we usually like to give you guys a bit of a summary on our subjects at the beginning of the series, but this one's going to be a little different. I'll be honest with you. It's because I don't want to say any of this stuff more than once. It's bad. Yeah, fair. He killed once, which is far less than some of our other subjects, but I can promise you this is probably going to be one of the most evil human beings you've ever heard about, and the worst part is he basically got away with it. Yeah, this is a frustrating one, you guys, and once again, it's real bad. He basically, all the bad evil guy checklist, he checks it all. That's the honest truth. First and foremost, before we get into the early life of this absolute monster, I'd like to give a giant shout out and thank you to our dear friend Pink Flamingo 20 for her help with the research this week. I know reading about the young life of Issei Sagawa is probably not the most fun you've ever had, but you did an amazing job. So thank you. Thank you once again. You're awesome, Pink. We used a large amount of sources this week, but one of the most interesting ones I want to point out was the 2011 Issei Sagawa Vice interview. We're going to be referencing this a few times throughout the episode as well. All right, so let's get into this. Issei Sagawa was born on June 11th, 1949 in Kobe, Japan. When he was born, his father Akira Sagawa was able to fit little Issei into one hand. He was born prematurely. His mother, Tomi, treated him with love and affection from an early age. They show what he looked like as a baby in the Vice interview, and he is just this, like, teeny, tiny little thing. It's hard to imagine that you're looking at someone who's going to do such terrible things. It's always, like, it's weird to see baby pictures of evil people. Have you ever seen the pictures of baby Hitler? I know you have, Charlotte, right? Oh, 100%. I was just going to say that exact thing. It's bizarre because you're like, oh, that's, you know, that's a cute baby. It has no ideals or anything yet. It's a completely blank slate. And then what they become is mind blowing and not in a good way. 
It's bizarre. It really is. And just as a heads up, if you do choose to watch the Vice interview, it is very not safe for work. And they do show the crime scene photos quite early on with pretty much no warning at all. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, it isn't exactly an easy watch at all. All right, so back to Issei. So kind of a rough start right from birth, hey? Yeah, kind of. And even as an adult, he stood at about five feet tall. Unlike a lot of our other subjects, he was born into an extremely wealthy family. Akira was the president of Kurita Water Industries. And it didn't end there. His grandfather had been a very influential man who worked as a well-respected editor for one of the main newspapers in Japan at the time, the Asahi Shimbun. Something I found interesting about this was essentially his grandfather kind of had this like role in the press and his dad had this role of wealth and together they're basically able to try to cover up whatever they can. And that's going to really come in handy for him after he committed his crimes. But we're going to get into all of that later. Yeah, that is a pretty perfect combo if you want to get away with things, honestly. Right. As a toddler, Issei was diagnosed with enteritis, which is inflammation of the small intestine. The treatment for this was essentially him having to get a ton of injections of potassium and calcium. This would be traumatic to a lot of adults, or at least majorly unpleasant, but to a toddler, like, this would be a nightmare. Once this was treated, it doesn't seem like he was plagued by any further health problems. In the Vice interview, he talks about how he wasn't meant to survive his birth and that because of that, his parents were extremely loving and doting. Something interesting to note that he describes himself as small and frail, which just really isn't the description one would imagine for someone who did something as awful as he has. His childhood was admittedly a pretty strange one. In later interviews, he would talk a lot about this quote-unquote game that he would play with his dad, uncle, and brother. Now, this is a pretty elaborate game, so we're going to try to break it down as best as possible here. Yeah, there's quite a bit of strange plot. Yeah, and uh, I want to say there's a couple different versions of the story. They're all weird as hell, but essentially this is the main one that he talks about. Okay, so his uncle would play the role of the evil giant. He would chase the boys in an attempt to catch them and eat them. I mean, already we're off to a wild start. <laughs> his father would act as the brave knight who would attempt to slay the giant and save the day. But apparently his father wasn't a very good knight because most of the time he would lose and the boys would end up as an ingredient in the giant's stew. We found another version of this story where both his uncle and his father are the evil giants, which really doesn't make any of this better or worse, but it's just kind of all legitimately weird. Either way, in his childhood years, he spent a bunch of time also enjoying books about cannibalism. And one of these books was Hansel and Gretel. I never really thought about Hansel and Gretel being a book about like cannibalism, but I mean, it's not wrong. Yeah, it's technically not wrong at all. It probably doesn't come as a surprise, but he didn't really have any friends growing up. Despite that, he still enjoyed school, and he felt comfortable there and still got good grades. He was highly intelligent from an early age and worked very hard to make his parents proud of him. He would say in later interviews that while he did do well in school, he often found himself distracted by the thighs both of his male and female classmates. 
Which I mean, probably not like the most abnormal thing. Except that he often thought about what their thighs would taste like if they were cooked and on a plate. That'll do it. Yeah. Something interesting to note is that he actually talks about his childhood with great fondness. He legitimately loved his parents and said that his childhood was carefree and that it was probably the happiest time of his life. Unlike a lot of the people we cover, he has nothing but what he sees as very positive memories about that time. It also isn't like he was raised in an environment where he was actively hearing about sexual things from people around him. He would later say that as a child, he never even heard his parents say the word sex, let alone anyone talk about it with him. He also shared the story of his first erection. Oh, fantastic. A great story to hear, isn't it? Mm -hmm. He talks about how he didn't understand what was happening and was incredibly embarrassed about it. But despite being embarrassed about that, this was around the time that he began engaging in bestiality with his dog, which was something he did on multiple occasions. As he got older, his taste in books matured, and it went in a pretty unconventional direction. He focused mostly on books with the same kind of theme, women in distress or people being eaten, and oftentimes it was both. He also discovered the work of Renoir at the age of 12. And when you look at the overall work of Renoir, it's pretty easy to tell which paintings caught his eye. Yeah, there's lots of uh, naked ladies bathing themselves. And the women in these paintings are often fair-skinned and often blonde, and Issei believed this to be his idea for the perfect woman. He also developed an interest in the ladies of Hollywood at the time. Again, many of them fit the type of small, blonde, and fair. His favorite actress was Grace Kelly. He would later refer to women like this as angels. He started off thinking about the usual teenage boy things about women that they're attracted to, but he began to obsess over their skin. He often thought about touching it and how soft they would be. This was around the time his fascination with cannibalism and his obsession with women would begin to collide. He had quite the active imagination and would create scenarios in his head. They would involve a woman in some sort of a vulnerable situation, such as a shower, and Issei would fantasize about himself watching until he finally took her by surprise. The scenario would often end with him strangling her, often with his belt, and then eating her corpse. When someone, especially a young person in their formative years, becomes obsessed with something like this and then links sex to violence, it becomes very difficult to go back from that. Oh, exactly. Now, Issei had the self-awareness to realize that this kind of thinking wasn't exactly normal, but he didn't know what to do about it. He was too embarrassed to talk to his parents or his peers about this, so he decided that he would try to seek out professional help. When he found the number of someone he thought could help, he called them and was told that it sounded like this was something that he would have to sit down and talk to someone about it in person. He refused. And this was at the age of only 15, you guys. Like, he's a still just a teenager here. At some point during this time, he also shared his concerns with his brother June. This also didn't go the way Issei had planned. His brother was basically like, you're bullshitting me, and laughed at him. 
After this, everything went downhill even further. His thoughts delved into more and more depraved territory, and eventually he made the decision that someday he would find the woman of his dreams and act out all of his cannibalistic fantasies. As an adult, he would describe this as his desire turning into obligation. He would attempt to take his first victim when he was 24 years old. Issei was studying literature at Waco University in Tokyo. This was when he met an absolutely stunning, tall, blonde German woman. He was instantly smitten with her. Issei talked about this in a later interview with British reporter Peter McGill. He said, When I met this woman in the street, I wondered if I could eat her. So he began to formulate a plan. He saw that she often left her windows unlocked, so he chose that as his point of entry. When he made his way into the apartment, he was thrilled to see that not only was she asleep, she was almost completely naked. He looked around for a weapon and saw that she had left an umbrella near her bed. As he made his way towards it, he accidentally brushed up against her and woke her up. When she saw him there, she began to scream immediately. This had not gone according to plan for Issei at all, and her reaction scared him, so he took off. He was arrested shortly after for the attempted sexual assault. When the police interviewed him, he did not tell them about the fact that his actual intention had been to kill her and cannibalize her there on the spot. The charges were dropped and the woman was paid a settlement. All of this was arranged by Akira Segawa. This entire thing showed Issei two things. One, it hadn't been that difficult to break into a woman's house and find her in a vulnerable position. And two, if he did it again and got caught, his dad would just bail him out. The only thing he had done wrong in his mind was not prepare enough for the crime. Next time would be different. There are some reports that he attempted to seek psychiatric help around this time, but his father paid to cover that evidence up. We can't 100% confirm that, but considering his father paid this victim off and how things are going to end for the other victim, I wouldn't be super surprised by this at all. I looked into this a bit more and apparently what happened was he called another psychiatrist who told him that, hey, you're confessing to a crime and I'm going to need to report what you're doing here. And then nothing ever happened. So once again, he's just kind of gotten away with something. Although if someone would have tried to help him at this time, you know, would it have gone differently? Or if the guy would have just reported him and said nothing to Issei, had this gone completely different? And the thing about it, too, is like he's broken into a woman's house. Yes, but he hasn't killed anyone. He hasn't cannibalized anyone yet. So no. like, what do you do as someone like this? He shouldn't be out in public, but there's nothing yet that he's done that justifies taking him out of the public yet. Basically. Yeah, that's exactly it. Which is horrifying. 100%. And I'm sure there's a lot of folks out there that are on this kind of line, right? Mm -hmm. Which is incredibly dangerous. Which brings me to one other point. Lock your windows. Lock your doors. Oh, yeah, guys. This I, is I, another version of that. We never want to fearmonger or anything like that, of course, but there was, I believe, a detective. Um, this is very verb or like non-verbatim, but basically, what he said was, the craziest kind of home intruder is the one that will break into a house not knowing what's going on inside. 
because they don't give a fuck. So anything could happen, right? So yes, lock your doors, lock your windows, especially at night, guys. I don't want to get too far off topic, but you just brought that up. And it's interesting because when you look at some of the worst killers, I mean, I'm going to bring up two people we haven't covered yet. Uh, Richard Chase and Richard Ramirez, that's exactly what they did. They went in with absolutely no plan. They just wanted to kill somebody. BTK, he did the same thing too. It's, yeah, incredibly scary. In 1977, Issei Sagawa moved to Paris, France to pursue his PhD in literature. He enrolled at the Sorbonne, a well-known university. A new environment only allowed him to sink further and further into his dark fantasies. And something that is interesting about this is he talks about this time in uh, the interview on Vice. Mm -hmm. And he says how his mom was really sad when they were saying goodbye to him. They were like saying goodbye at the train station or, or whatever. And she's crying and she's upset. And he doesn't say it was because she was gonna miss him. In his mind, it was because she thought something terrible was going to happen. And he says like, oh yeah, she knew I was gonna do something terrible. She must have known, blah, blah, blah. But she didn't know. How was anyone supposed to know? Oh, no. And you never expect that of your own child. No. And the, the fact that he's like, yeah, no, because they were very close and she did love him very much. So the fact that he's like, oh, yeah, she wasn't going to miss me. She just thought I was going to kill somebody. That right there shows how little of an actual human being he really is. Oh, 100%. He's trying to project that onto someone that could never have imagined what their son was about to do. Poor Tommy. Oh, God, I can't imagine being in that position. What, like, what do you do? I'm sure the way you're torn between protecting your child and, you know, doing the right thing must be incredibly difficult. Absolutely. And by the age of 27, he was regularly spending time in the Parisian red light districts. He would bring home sex workers often, and whenever he would, he fantasized about shooting them and eating their flesh. Each time he froze up and was unable to go through with it, he did this every single night, and each time it ended the same way. He spent his nights like that, but during the days, he was wildly lusting over the young and beautiful women in his classes. Like we mentioned, he had a type, and suddenly he was surrounded by countless women who came very, very close to fitting what he wanted. And if you look at the fashion of that time, women were a lot more... It wasn't like the 50s or anything like that. We're in the late 70s right now. Lots of short skirts, lots of skin being shown, lots of freedom. You know, it's unfortunately a perfect time for someone like him. Yeah, and I would imagine it would be quite different from what he was used to back home in Japan as well. Especially because he was just lusting about women like this. He didn't get to see women who looked like this all the time before, and now he's literally surrounded by them. In 1979, famous actress Jean Seberg took her own life in her car not far from the university campus. The idea of a beautiful woman lying dead so close to where he was excited him and fueled the desire even further. And that's a name that you're going to hear us talk about again, dear listeners, because we just took some time to look into that entire death there, and it was very suspicious. So uh, look forward to an episode on Gene Seberg or uh, extra credit segment because something's off about that. Yeah, it looks very, very interesting. We're definitely going to go down that rabbit hole. 
According to reports, she was found completely nude. Um, according to further reports, she was wrapped up in a rug. So that's why we're going to talk about that one at a later time. But, oh, man. Right? He began to dream about what it would have been like to get to her body before the police did so that he could have his way with her and eat her flesh. After many failed attempts to take the lives of sex workers in his home, he decided to go back to Japan where he spent four months. It is unknown whether or not he committed any crimes during that time, but he certainly was thinking about it. He returned to France where he attempted to focus on his studies once more. On the outside, he was performing well in school and came across as a shy but cultured young man. On the inside, he could only focus on one thing. No matter how hard he seemed to try, he just couldn't find the perfect victim or act his fantasies out. That all changed when he met Renee Hartevelt, a fellow student, and developed an obsession with her. He would later say that he knew that he wanted to eat her flesh the moment that he first laid eyes on her. And tragically, he would get his way. Ooh, fuck this story. I hate this, dude. I know we say that about them all, but boy, oh boy, is he gnarly. Do not like zero out of ten. I, okay, so I don't recommend watching the Vice interview if you are squeamish in any way. Um, but I do recommend watching it if this interests you because it's it's seriously him and he's going through like photo albums of everything and the way he describes the crime scene and what he did and who he is is it's almost like you're not looking at a human talking and he talks about that too he talks about how in his mind he thinks he's from like another dimension or he's like some other kind of being and this story it's terrible it's horrifying and then after the murder it just gets so fucked up Well, while I was doing a little bit of research and going through some of the case images from that Vice interview, all I can say is he looks smug in every fucking frame. Like, it's unbelievable. Like, he's almost proud of it, it feels like. He is. And and I don't, again, I don't want to give away a lot because it's just... He is smug and he is very hoity-toity about it. And he talks about it as if he's like a famous chef who had a really, really great meal. And that's what's fucked up. Yeah, that's kind of where the nickname celebrity cannibal comes in, because that's clearly how he feels about himself. The delusion here is stunning. (laughs) He did a lot afterwards that made him famous. And let's just say, um, we'll we'll get to it. We'll get to it. (laughs) Oh, my God. You got like, I'd say we definitely entered fucked up territory. But next week, is going to be terrible on a whole other level. Anytime we do a series like this, I understand it's not for everyone. No, and we will probably do something a little more lighthearted um, for maybe the next episode or so when we're done this series, just to give us all some lovely uh, brain bleach to remove this man from our minds. I think that's a good idea. Uh, Thegrimcurriculum at gmail.com if you have any nominations for our next palate cleanser, because we're going to need one. Yes, absolutely. I think it's important that we explore these stories, though, because it's proof that evil people genuinely exist like not that we need that reminder but to me the sheer fact that someone like this was on this planet blows my mind he's he's up there with albert fish for me 
Yeah, and the one thing we discuss a lot when talking about these kinds of people is that nurture versus nature, right? Like this mm-hmm. dude had a pretty great childhood, a little strange. And yes, don't get me wrong, like, he, you know, being born prematurely, he certainly had somewhat of a disadvantage there. But for all intents and purposes, not the worst childhood, considering some of the people we've discussed before on the show. And then, you know, he had loving parents, and he even says himself that he loved them too. So what the fuck happened that you went down this twisted road? Right? Like, it's people like this, it just, they don't make sense. They don't. Because in my mind, someone like this should not exist. No, glitch in the matrix for sure. Absolutely. All right. So next week, yep, just, I mean, prepare yourselves. It's going to be something else. But (laughs) until then, it's almost that time of year again, friends. Yes, it is. Well, today is September 2nd as of recording. And... That's basically fall for me. The leaves are changing on the trees, which yeah, is it's both time. Yeah, you know, Mariah Carey's starting to defrost. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Bublé is going to step out of his cave here in a month or so. Um, all that to say, the Halloween season is coming, and we are looking for some grim encounter submissions. Those would be anything that is strange and unexplained to you. Have you experienced a haunting? Have you possibly seen a cryptid, a UFO? What happened to you that you just don't understand? We want to know about it. Did you live next door to a serial killer? That would be yeah. interesting. We freaking love telling you guys' <laughs> stories, and we're honored that you choose to send them to us. So by all means, if you'd like to hear them right out on the show, we adore those kinds of episodes, and it's it's going to be the good time for it. And uh, if you want to submit an entry, please send it to thegrimcurriculum at gmail.com with Grim Encounters in the subject line. We cannot wait. We've gotten some pretty awesome submissions already, and... I don't want to give a ton away, but we're working on some stuff. And this episode of Grim Encounters might be super, super special. So I'm stoked. Yeah, fingers crossed that good things are on the way. Uh, Speaking of freaking good things, now we need to give a shout out to our patrons. Thank you so, so, so much to Mayhem Mudkip, Kevin Hillary, Brian, Judy, Atlantean Jedi, Lisa, and Bob. Y'all are the tits. We love the support from you guys over there. And indeed, everybody that listens, y'all are awesome. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. We've done this 75 times now. How cool is that? Yeah, plus I guess we'll be on, I think, extra credit 12, which is crazy. Which is 24 weeks. Well, I guess nearly half a year of extra credit. So that's pretty freaking <laughs> awesome, hell? too. Like, that's crazy. I mean, you guys are awesome. I can't believe so many people listen to us and recommend us to people and just genuinely enjoy us. And I was uh, I had a really high thought the other day of like, <laughs> I wonder how many times I'm just like sitting and chilling in my house and my voice is playing as a part of someone else's life. I feel like at one point in time, that thought would have given me the ick, but I'm pretty proud of it now. So right? yeah, that's growth. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that's gross. <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you all for listening, guys. This has been The, the Grim, Grim Curriculum. Curriculum.
Dina, did you know in ancient Asia, death by elephant was a popular form of execution? Shit. They could be taught to slowly break bones, crush skulls, twist off limbs, or even execute people using large blades fitted to their tusks. What a way to go! Yeah, and it was around for a long-ass time, too. So yeah, death by elephant, guys. Ouch. (laughs) Bye! Bye.